0: It is the Advent season, which we have been saying is that it is a word that basically means arrival. It's talking about the first arrival of Jesus, as we see here, maybe in the most famous passage of the telling of Jesus's birth narratives. But also Advent is meant to, and this was really the main note of Advent for most of church history. And we've lost this largely as the modern church, but really it's a longing for the arrival of Jesus again in his second coming when he comes to make all things new when he comes to utterly transform this world and our very selves far as the curse is found far as the curse is found and so we live between these two arrivals of Jesus and so it is proper in this time to consider even the the nature of the relationship and we'll get to this a little bit what is the relationship between Jesus's first arrival and his second arrival. The particular series that we're in we've called, And He Shall Be Called, because what we're, we're, we're really pulling out of these passages are these names of Jesus and the significance of the names given to Jesus. So we've looked at Jesus. What does that name mean? Emmanuel. What does that mean? Son of the Most High. This week we look at this title given by the angels here, that he is Christ the Lord. And we even sing that. We sang that this morning. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. What stands out so much in the text that Mike just read and the text that we'll be walking through this morning, and what stands out so much in that title, Christ the Lord, is the incredible, I guess you can call it a contrast, between the cosmic enormity of the events that are happening and with the lowliness the humility the seeming insignificance of those to whom they're happening that i think is the is the the main thing we're meant to feel in the way that this master storyteller luke tells this story this this you use a fancy word here this dichotomy this paradox this whatever you want to call it between the 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 amazingness, the wonder, the uniqueness, the majesty of the creator of the universe showing up in the story that he's the author of. And yet the everydayness, the the seeming normality of the characters among whom this whole thing happens. And to give you a little preview of where I'm headed... Even the title, Christ the Lord, has that beautiful tension in it. That Christ, the Messiah, the human being for whom we long, the the one who would come and make things right. And yet, this Messiah that now we understand that the Messiah's primary work was coming to suffer, to be cast aside, to to have the, the full weight of sin and shame poured out upon him on our behalf, that that Christ is the Lord, the Lord, this this title for God, this most reverential of titles for God, that the one who was slain on our behalf was the, the very master of the galaxies. That's the amazingness of Christmas. I want to show you how this tension, not build, but how this tension recurs in the telling of this particular part of Jesus' arrival. So, starting at verse 8 here. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock. By night, probably a familiar passage for those of you who have who have been around the church, around Christmas things for a while. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And as you might expect, among a bunch of shepherds just going about their normal job, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. We're meant to feel that, wait, what? To them? And when? And why? And Were they prepared for this, just like we saw in the story of Mary, where we are clearly meant to feel the lack of preparedness for the amazing events that unfold, so too here... Are we given? No, there's nothing particularly special. In fact, there might be something particularly unspecial about these shepherds. And yet it's to them that the angel appears there. And this whole idea of keeping watch over their flocks by night, which kind of rolls off the tongue. It sounds poetic. It is, it is maybe linguistically it's poetic. It is the most normal thing you can say of shepherds. They're doing their thing, man. I was trying to think of this week, the like a modern equivalent. And right now, my my youngest child has this thing about he wants to be a gas station attendant. That is what he he writes. And, you know, whenever his teacher asks him, what do you want to be? And we don't know where this is coming from, but okay, a gas station attendant. And that's like, in my mind, I'm like, it's probably a pretty good comparison. People who kind of just do their thing pretty normal every day. They sit outside in the middle of the night when the rest of us don't have to, tending to things that we may or may not need at some point. Think of that, right? Like, And there were gas station attendants kind of doing their thing, sitting there on a cold night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. That's a wild thing. And they respond as literally every single person responds to angelic visitations in the New Testament. They are so happy, and they're like, This is so cool! This is so great. God chose us. This is an exciting thing. Look, God thinks that, that we're awesome. No. What is their response? Angel of the Lord appeared to them. Glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. Language here is they, were, they feared with a mega fear, is what it says. They are absolutely beside themselves, terrified. Why? Because this is not what they expect. This is not what they believe themselves to be worthy of. And whatever the appearing, now keep in mind, this is not the appearing of the presence of God. This is a, the appearing of a representative of the presence of God. And yet that is sufficient to send them into fearing mega, with a mega fear. This is how overwhelming the mere, the, the, this, isn't, this isn't direct encounter with God. This is a mediated encounter with God, and yet even that sends them into terror. We miss the the utter wonder of veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. We miss that if we don't understand the deity that we are dealing with. That this one is so great, so wholly other, so perfect morally, so perfect in his being, that a mediated appearance of him strikes fear in a human heart. And why does it strike fear? Why doesn't it welcome us? Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to believe that the light of the glory of God is an inviting warm light that beckons us forward? Why is it something that actually sends us away? it's because we are so utterly aware when we when we experience that which we are not and that which we are supposed to be in its fullness we experience just how much we are not that We see this again and again in the scriptures. We see this in the Garden of Eden. This is why Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. It's not because God is petty and sends them to their room. It is because he knows that the fullness of who he now is is a danger to them in their imperfect state. Right? Like you would, I I always used to say this to students. the, The thing that you would least want is for the person that you admire most to encounter you in the moment that you're least proud of. Imagine the the most horrible thing that you've ever done, and now the person that you admire most, that you have the greatest opinion of in the world, is suddenly there in that moment. Imagine the crushing weight that that would be, because you feel the distance between what that person calls you to and what you actually are. This is why the presence of God so often causes people to go and run and hide rather than be invited. In fact, it's always what it does. That's what shows up to shepherds. Amazingly, rather than saying, yeah, you're absolutely right, shepherds. You should run and hide. This is God and you are who you are. Instead, the angel says what almost always an angel says. Angel says them, fear not. Why? Why shouldn't they fear? Are they wrong about their reaction? It's not, fear not. You are actually perfectly fine. Fear not. You are actually worthy of God's presence. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news. The literal language here is, I evangelize you. Behold, I evangelize you good news of great joy. That will be, now don't miss this, for who? For the powerful, for the righteous, for the attractive, for the rich, for those worthy of God. No, I evangelize you, news of great joy, precisely because it's for all people. So we begin to consider why is this story told the way that it is? I think that this is our first clue. To say the angel of the Lord, it seems, likely appears to shepherds of all people precisely because of the nature of the news that the angel brings. That this news is as relevant to shepherds keeping over their flock by night as it is to Caesar. It is as relevant to the to the have-nots as it is to the haves. It is as relevant to you, Right now, as you sit here in central New Jersey, in the awful year that we've had, as it is to any other human being at any other time and place, this news is that universal. It goes that wide in its implications. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. You see, why do they go from utter, I would argue, appropriate fear of the presence of God to actually moving by the end of this passage to effusive, abundant worship of God? It's because they get what they need, and it's because you and I get what we need. Because at the end of the day, what imperfect, unholy people need is to somehow be made perfect and holy such that we can actually be invited into the glory of God's perfection. You see, and the only way to get that is not through self-effort, because we've all tried. It's not through any other kinds of means. It's not through hiding behind. It's It's through a Savior. It's through something outside of ourselves that can actually take our imperfection, that can take our unholiness upon itself, be our Savior, be our Messiah, and in exchange give us what only he was worthy of. That is why it is good news of great joy, and it's for all people. Love what it says next. It says, Verse 12, follow with me, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's one of those little details in the Christmas story that has become like one of the most precious things to me in all of these stories. Never seen it before, but uh, read an article, I think it was in Christianity Today, I actually pulled a quote from it and, and forgot to cite myself, so sorry uh, if, if you're, you know, in, in academia or something. But I think it was in Christianity Today, I think it was a couple years back. And I remember reading this and I was able to, to pull up where, where I pulled out the, the paragraph that I just found so interesting. Um, the Gospels never use this word, this will be a sign for you without a deeper meaning, right? We, you can very easily read this as, and this will be a sign for you. Like, go to Bethlehem, and when you find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, you'll be like, oh, there it is. That's the one. But a sign, that's not how it, first of all, it's a weird way to say it. It's like a baby was born. You'll know it's the baby when it's a baby, and it's wrapped, and it's clothed like a baby, right? Do you see that? Like, it's a weird sign if that's the primary thing. If it said like, oh, um, and this will be a sign for you. It's in room 203 and it's wearing, you know, the the cute blue PJs or something. You'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's how I know which baby it is. No, no, no. It says this will be a sign for you. And I think that we get a little whisper at the end of the passage when it says that Mary pondered up these things after it's clear that the shepherds told them, hey, this is what the angel said, likely included, this will be a sign for you, that there's more going on here. This is a sign. This is a symbol. This has deep meaning there. There's more than meets the eye if you're capable of seeing it. That's how the gospels use this word sign. So in what way is it a sign that this baby will be wrapped in swaddling clothes? Well, think of how crazy it is. They've just announced a savior has been born. The one who was to come from the line of David, the king that you've longed for, Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, who is God in flesh. And think about, think about the significance, they're saying, of the fact that it's a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Here's what that article said. It said, the conditions of Jesus's first advent were a small metaphor for his entire life. As the Son of God became flesh and bones, he experienced an unfathomable limitation of himself. The universe closed in around him, restricting him with time and space. It's getting this from Philippians 2, that, that beautiful Christ hymn, if you want to look that up. Having a human body was like being swaddled from birth to death for Jesus, as it contained Almighty God in unnaturally small dimensions. Isn't that profound? That the God of the, the unbounded one, the one who could create a universe that still to this day is ever expanding, bound himself in the form of all things of a baby. It's likely why we get this mention of swaddling. If, if you've ever been around kids, you've probably seen this whole thing that, that we parents do where you, you swaddle them. We had this thing. Oh, what was it called? Um, sweetie. Sweetie, you remember what that thing was called? A wombie. A wombie. I don't know if anybody else uses a wombie, right? A wombie, and it ties a baby like this. And what does it do? We like to think it helps a baby sleep. I think it just makes parents less crazy. But somehow, right, they can't smack themselves, or, or it, they just seem less... Okay, God of the universe in a woomby. That's why. What is the sign? What, how does that point beyond itself? Here's what I think it's saying. It's saying to be human is to be bound, is it not? To live in 2020 is to feel the boundedness of our existence. To deal with anxiety and depression is to feel stuck in this world. To experience the death of loved ones, to experience disease, is to feel bound by a world that is not as it should be. To long for things that we will never receive this side of eternity is to feel the utter limitation of a world utterly marred by sin. The God of the universe bounds himself to make himself available to all of that to make himself empathetic toward all that. You see, God is not just a God of sympathy who looks down from on high and says, man, that must be really difficult. He got into it. He swaddled himself with our junk and was laid in a manger. The only other time, and this is where Luke, I think, we, we have to respect that he is a a master craftsman. He is trying to point beyond the mere details of these things and show us the significance. The only other time that we're told that Jesus is bound and then laid is somewhere is where do you think? It's when he is bound by the authorities such that he can be beaten and then bound on a tree to hang there for your sin and my sin and then laid in a tomb, dead, still, the author of life, killed, You see, right here at his birth, we have a sign of the trajectory of this one's life, of what it will cost him to be Savior, of what it will cost the Lord to be Christ. And if we miss that, we completely miss Christmas. Story goes on to say, I love this, that after they say this sign, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying this word host is not a word that we really ever use. It's a military term. I don't know if you realize that when it says that there's like an angelic host, we're supposed to get less uh, sweet little medieval angels in togas with harps. And we're more supposed to get terrifying spiritual soldiers, whatever that looks like. Now picture they come and that host... That army, that multitude comes in with that crescendo of song. This makes me think of like those, those great worship songs where someone starts by singing and it's just an individual voice. And then suddenly the choir comes in. I think of like Graves Into Gardens is a song released to a lot this year. And there's that part where it goes from a single voice to all of a sudden this choir just freaking out behind the the main singer that's that moment so now there's one angel that was terrifying enough now imagine what this multitude does imagine imagine the volume of this imagine how it shook these shepherds to their very core and they're saying glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased you hear again glory to god in the highest and what is the implication that the glory of god has come to make peace with humanity And how? By being bound, by being laid down, by being swaddled in all of the imperfection, in all of the brokenness that you and I can bring to him. When the angels went away into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem, see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And Mary, but Mary, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. As though they had any other choice, the shepherds say, we should probably go. We should probably see what these angels, what these heavenly armies want us to see. And they go, and it is exactly as they said. But think of this. right? Use, use your sanctified imagination here. Think of the contrast between what they've encountered with the heavenly armies, the craziness of that moment, the volume of that moment, the clear breaking in of heaven, Into the the mundanity of earth, the mundaneness of earth, there every day, all of a sudden, the cosmos is speaking to them. But when they show up to that which they were directed to, where are they? They're in a barn, for goodness sake. They're among angels and all the smells that come with angels. And yet, there it is. There's the baby. Wrapped in swaddling cloths. Seemingly another child. If anything, a child down on its luck that somehow had to be born in an animal trough. Rather than a fancy 21st century hospital. Or at least in a first century inn. But there it is. And they go home saying what does this mean? What can we do? Oh, did I say smells with angels? My wife just said I said smells with animals. There you go. Thank you, sweetie. Real-time corrections. Right? Okay, what's the point? What's the point? Here's the point. The events of that first Christmas and the events that we await in the second coming can seem so unbelievably massive to us that we begin to ask the question what could that possibly have to do with me my everyday circumstances my everyday suffering my everyday brokenness my everyday depression anxiety my everyday sin and rebellion my everyday frustrations but don't you see that's the point that's the point of the way the story is told that's the point of the angel saying it's good news for all people It's the point of Jesus being born in an animal trough. It's the point of him showing up to shepherds so that precisely in the moment that we are called to doubt that heaven could possibly come to this place and time on earth, this room, your room, your story, your brokenness, we're to remember. That's what the first advent meant. That's the sign, people of God. That's what he was trying to get through to us then. It's what he's trying to get through to us now. The last candle that that we lit, that Dave lit today, is the love candle. What's the simplest definition of love? I don't know. Here's one that I offer you. I think, I think love is wanting someone's good. It's, it's generally wanting someone's good. If hate is the opposite of love and hate is wanting someone's harm then we could say that love is wanting someone's good. Here's what's important, though, about love. The extent of someone's love is the depth of someone's love is just how far they will go to procure your good, to make sure that that good is done for you. So I was thinking about it this week. I, I love the New York Yankees. Love them. Been, I've been a fan of them since I was a kid. This is like the worst thing that I've said. Some of you are perking up and some of you are you know offended by this. Be offended by something else, I said. I love the New York Yankees. You know what I've done to make sure that that their, that their lives flourish and thrive? Absolutely nothing. And so you should call into question my love for the Yankees. Now, I love my kids. Deeply love my kids. You know what I've done? Oh, some of you parents. Let me get an amen. Oh, what I've done to make sure that they're good. And in the other room, my wife is screaming amen. That's why it's important that I love my children differently than I love the Yankees. And it's why I should be held accountable to that. Here's what I think sometimes we think. I think we think, yeah, God wants my good. I believe that. I believe that at a theological level. I believe he's inclined towards me. I don't think that he's... Now, some of you actually don't believe. You believe that he's inclined against you. That might be another sermon for another day. Let me talk to those of you who who are theologically convinced. Yeah, I think that God is generally good. He's generally for me. I wonder, though, do you think that he's he's a, a fan of yours? Or that he's your good and gracious heavenly father? Because here's what I can tell you, that the first advent at least means. It at least is meant to demonstrate to us just how far he will go to procure your good and my good. The depth, the extent, the enormity of God's love is at least the distance from God's heavenly throne to Bethlehem. And I suspect if our minds could wrap themselves around what that distance is, we would begin to understand. Because not only is it from heaven's throne to Bethlehem, it's from heaven's throne all the way into being swaddled and bound by sin and death themselves. And that distance, I'm not sure any of us could fathom. I'm pretty sure that that's what Christ the Lord is wrestling with the night before he is buried. Father, I've come a mighty long way to do what you've asked of me. And if there's any other way, if there's any other distance that I could travel other than going all the way into suffering, sin, and death, Father, let this pass from me. And yet he obediently goes. And I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what causes doubt in you about God's love for you, about the extent that he will go. But I am telling you, there is no distance. There is no sin. There is no brokenness that is so far between where he is and where you believe yourself to be that is farther than as far as he already went for you. And so I know it can feel like he is distant. I know it can feel like, man, does he really love me? Because this, this, this is happening. But here's the other lesson of this first Advent. That so often the salvation of God comes in exactly the opposite way that we expect it to. Let this be a sign for you. That the salvation of God came in messy, dirty, dusty circumstances and didn't get better from there, it got worse. And so often his saving work in our lives, his work of grace in our lives will not look how we expect it to look. And I say that as your pastor who loves you. I say that as your pastor who frankly I wish it was another way. And let let yet let the saints among us who have traveled with him long enough say that when you look back over your shoulder, you realize that his work was there all along, even though so often on the path it did not look how we so desperately desire that it would look. And yet he was there because here's his promise. And it was a promise that was secured by his first coming is that lo, he is with us always to the very end when he will return again, because the one who was bound, let someone say amen, the one who was bound and laid down, rose up. And is now unbound. And because of what he did in his first advent, his second advent will be unbounded in its power. It will be unbounded in its implication. It will be unbounded in its work. In undoing all that has gone wrong in your story. In undoing all of the sin and rebellion that you and I have done. It will completely exonerate it, cleanse it, do away with it, send it away forever. That's what we long for. But we long for it with confidence because we know it's already been secured. That's our hope, Jacob's well, now and always. So however far you feel he is, know that in spite of your feelings, he is near. And when you doubt that, look again at the first advent. Look at the clues here of how the work of God often looks in a world, in stories marred by sin such as ours are. He is near, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with people like us to dwell. Jesus, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would be hope in these times. Lord, I know that we are weary. Lord, I know that we feel bound, that we feel stuck in so many ways. God, because of external circumstances of this year, because of personal things going on around us, but also because of just what's in us, Lord. God, would you remind us that we have a Savior who is unbinding us even now, but one day will unbind us fully. Lord, help us to live between those two realities Help us to have faith to put trust in the one who loved us with an ultimate love, who is not a fan of us, but is a good and gracious father who will one day say, oh, oh, if you only knew what it took to bring you home. Oh, if you only knew what it took to truly secure your good. Lord, help us to hear that now. Help us to not be wayward, ignorant children, but children who live in gratitude for the things that we know you've done and for the things that we don't even know you're doing. God, thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who makes all this possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.